Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more information about how to run a scientific podcast, please visit azonetwork.com slash podcasts. Our guest today is Mr. Tony Jones, the CEO of One Nucleus. Tony runs one of the largest life science and healthcare networks in the world from their Cambridge base. He is currently planning the implementation of Genesis Digital 2020, a fully online networking event for life science and healthcare professionals around the world. It's a pleasure to have you on on the podcast today, Tony. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Getting closer and closer to light at the end of the tunnel and back to some sort of normality. So I'm an optimist by nature, so I will remain optimistic. Tell us about how you went from being a PhD in biochemistry to CEO of one of the largest life science networks in not only the UK, but dare I say it, the world. I think it's probably a bit like lots of people's careers. They're, they're opportunistic and you take what comes along when it's interesting. I think I'm a scientist at heart. You know, I, I trained as a scientist and was working in cancer research. Over the course of that time, you end up progressing and you spend more and more time planning experiments and engaging with your funders and collaborators sometimes and you're actually doing work in the lab. And it was over that where I sort of thought, you know, I quite like this personal interaction and talking about science because I'm better at talking than I am at science, I think, when I boil down to it. So I got more involved in how do you put the company together, raise the first investment. And that just went on to a point where just around 2000, a group of us were on an advisory board that formed the London Biotechnology Network. And after a couple of years of that running, I was invited, did I want to take over running the network? But actually bringing people together and enabling networks to happen is something I found that I had a a passion for and, and enjoyed doing and was able to build. And then 2010, we merged the Cambridge-based network with the London one to form One Nucleus. And I joined One Nucleus as a business development director at that point as we brought the two together. And then three years ago, I took over as chief executive of One Nucleus and still passionate about building networks and hopefully doing my part to help other people achieve their own goals. So you mentioned about bringing people together and technology transfer. I mean, how important is it now in 2020, looking to 2021, for scientists to collaborate and share their share their work online and sort of move away from sort of closing off to more democratizing science and open access? I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's absolutely pivotal that the scientists collaborate. That's how innovation happens. Often it's at the interface of two different sectors rather than in your own that the innovation is going to come from. I think increasingly as we we see research and development, you know, much more informed and enabled by the big world of big data. So we have much more data around topics like genomics. And a lot of those big data sets enable progress through the fact of their sheer scale. So often if you're only collaborating in one group, you're not going to have the scale of data to see these patterns. So I think collaboration has always been important, as has publication and scrutiny. And I think there you have to really walk that balance between peer review, which everybody would accept isn't perfect, but is there a better system of maintaining standards of scrutiny and research? But if you have it all open and anybody can publish anything, which is what we basically do see now on social media, it leaves it open to non-scrutinized information being put out, which then causes more confusion and and a 
conspiracy theories are easy to build momentum around if, if you create the right buzz. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have people publishing things that contradict each other. That's how science works. You know, we've seen over the whole COVID-19 dynamic, there's no surprises that different leading scientists have different opinions about things. They always have that because that's the only way to test a hypothesis is to argue against it. So I think that openness and I think platforms now that allow open publication are really important and it's speeded up the dissemination of knowledge. And so we all take our reference points on on opinions from someone. Mm. So I think dissemination is great and the transparency has got to be encouraged. And sometimes that leads to more and more collaboration and that's the way we will progress. And I think the speed with which we've got progress in COVID-19 vaccines and treatments and understanding highlights just how important that collaboration is. So how has technology played a role in that trend? And I know technology, certainly from a communications perspective, has companies have had to jump five years ahead and accelerate their working from home practice, their internal communications, the way they communicate with customers. What about in the scientific collaborative space? Technology has enabled communication at breakneck speed and sharing of knowledge, as much as even for ourselves as a, as a membership group doing lots of of events that we would have done, um, some bigger than others. Actually, the whole point of us coming together physically was to share knowledge. Now we're doing that online, and scientists and, and regulators are doing exactly the same thing. So technology has just meant we can move knowledge around quicker. I think scientists are no different to other human beings in that sense. They love to be sharing insight and knowledge with their peer group because that refines their own thinking. So technology's played a huge role. You know, if this had happened... Even five years ago, would we have had the same progress without the quality of infrastructure that we have around digital connectivity? I think would have been very, very difficult. Uh, you mentioned on a global scale before, you know, dealing with um, Australia, with America. Mm. Can you give us an example as to, as to how well, One Nucleus has facilitated those interactions? So for a long time, we, we've collaborated with groups like us sort of east and west coast, US, as you say, South Australia. But we've tended to focus on doing things that were face-to-face. -face. So if we were all at a big convention in the States, we would do some collaborative things whilst all our member companies were together. And I think what we've managed to do through, through going online is really use our international connectivity to bring our different sets of members together and share insight more. So to have people on from the US and the UK as if we would normally have put a physical event together for our members, but now it's split with America. You're getting both perspectives at the same time and connectivity so people can follow up and say, you said this about you know manufacturing of advanced therapies going on in New Jersey. How do we get involved in that if we wanted to access it? Which would that have happened if we hadn't been forced online? So I think at a time where our members are unable to travel to open up those new collaborations, new service offerings and deal flow, I've kind of felt that's been an area we've really been able to add value in and then look to continue doing that. I think to have gone through the pain we've gone through collectively, if we come out not keeping some of the lessons we learned and saying, well, how do we use this technology more? We've missed a trick. I think we have to learn lessons from adversity as well as things going well. So you mentioned a few online events there. What sort of what shape and size do these events take? Can you give us an idea of the, the numbers of people turning up? So like we have in face-to-face in -face events, often the size of the event varies a lot with one nucleus. So sometimes we do roundtable discussions with 10 or 12 people. 
And other times we'll do conferences like on Helix in the summer and, and Genesis coming up next month with hundreds of people. Uh, the job for One Nucleus is to work out, well, talk to our members, what are the things that they're finding difficult or information that they want to share? And I think what we've seen is, is real collaboration come to the fore where people aren't thinking, well, I'm competing with that company down the road because they might go to the same investors or customers as me. They've genuinely come together to say, how do we as business leaders work with our staff teams? How do we work with the guidance and our stakeholders broadly to be good businesses, good employers, and good corporate citizens? The key thing for us is the events have varied a lot. On average, I guess we'd end up with maybe between 40 and 60 people on, on some, most of these events. But again, I think what's been interesting is the attendees have specifically chosen those sessions because they're interested in that piece of, of knowledge. We've seen relationships with some of our companies deepen because we used to just see the people who went out to business development or technology scouting type external events, whereas now we're able to engage people who are based within the labs or within the operational side who maybe wouldn't have left the company for a day to go to an event, but they can come onto a webinar for an hour. I think we've just learned what we can bring to our members as a result of moving online, accepting that we can't replace everything from face-to-face networking and, and serendipities. Yeah, I've, I've found them extremely useful. At the very least, you at least know that you're not alone. Everybody's going through the exact same thing. You can help other people as they can help you just, just by talking. Yeah, you know, it was something that came up raising some questions with some of the network about how we enable students and those building their careers. How do we encourage them and enable them to use networks? And networking can be scary for some. Now that we're recording a lot of our events and they're online, there's this sort of archive of on-demand material building up. When I look back now, when I was in the lab wondering what do I do with my career, actually to learn about the industry, there were formal training courses you could do and they always have a place. But now the accessibility to say, you know what, I can go and listen to this discussion about what's happening in investment trends if I'm interested in going into an entrepreneurial role, whereas I couldn't have afforded to go to those conferences, but now I can watch them online. So I think there's, there's been some real opportunities come up for anybody in the field and understand your industry or even if somebody who's not in the industry who wants to understand it. Yeah, excellent. Um, okay, so you mentioned on Helix over the summer there, so that would have been in July, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken. July. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how, how many people did, did you have going to that? That's one of the flagship events of One Nucleus. How many people did you have? Yeah. How many exhibitors? I guess I'll go slightly earlier in the sense that if we think back to the late March and we were going into lockdown, up until that point, we'd all been thinking, we're delivering this event in Cambridge for 300 people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all going to come along and network and listen to talks and we've lined the speakers up and then you're told you can't do it. So you can, like everything else, you go into this kind of cycle of denial immediately thinking, oh, it'll be fine by July, which of course it never was going to be. <laughs> I remember <laughs> was, that well. It was naive at, at best. Then you come out saying, well, actually, you know what? There are opportunities if we have to change to put it online. The learning curve of how to do a conference, which in the end attracted over 400 people to come and do this online. How much content did you create? What sort of content do you create for an online event rather than a physical event? It was a major challenge for the One Nucleus team, which which numbers a whole 10 people. And at the same time, our audience was still learning because they hadn't been used to doing digital events either. You know, many times we'd love to have the view of an investor from the West Coast of the US or a, a public health specialist from Australia or something. And you kind of think, 
Actually, in the digital world, you're not asking these people to take days to fly from where they are to come and speak at your conference. So actually now you can engage speaker faculty and, and on-demand content to go around the live sessions. And, and actually looking back, you know what? There was no reason we couldn't have done it. We just didn't have the confidence in the technology that we would have risked beaming in a speaker from another continent. Um, but actually now we have built confidence. And I think what I feel we did with On Helix was demonstrated for ourselves and our community and our network that we can deliver events at that scale of, of value and allow the, the partnering to happen. But everyone learned a lot through that, both us and, and the, the delegates and everyone else. And then we've rolled that forward with our one of the flagship events. The other one is Genesis, which comes up in, in a couple of weeks. You know, there's a set of on-demand content we created called Around the World because we can have people from around the world discussing the same topic, but from their particular landscape. So, so you start to learn how we can then engage even more globally to say, well, you know what, this is what helps us here. Can we do that in a, a lower middle income country to help those people bring their technologies through? So that's the exciting bit. And from one nucleus, we're in the privileged position of being able to bring hundreds of people together. You mentioned there about um, on-demand content. So the, the lessons that you've learned in from on Helix and what you're taking into Genesis, which is on the uh, Thursday, the 10th of December. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's the main thing. Um, and the difference between what would have been, maybe maybe there was a biofinancing meeting that would have been a one-to-few meeting or a one-to-one -one meeting. Mm -hmm. But now, thanks to on-demand content, we're able to make that a one-to-many meeting. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, um, you can you can access that content, which is the fantastic thing. It's that knowledge dissemination. No, absolutely. Um, so just on, on the question of on-demand content, what, what's the sort of mix as you're running – Genesis, what's the mix of pre-recorded, simulated live or on-demand content and, and the live sort of keynote sessions? It's around about 60% live and interactive, 40% on-demand. That also includes the days around Genesis because obviously in a physical conference, we'd have been used to people having exhibition stands and engaging with the delegates about the services they can offer. But of course, that's not possible when you're not there physically. So what we have created this year a week around surrounding Genesis are these innovation workshops where people who would have exhibited are going to run a one-hour inter interactive workshop. It's, been, it's enabling that live interaction, but you're not competing against other conference sessions going on, or you're not only being seen by people because they're on their way to the coffee bar. They're coming to your session to understand what it is you offer and why you do it. So that enables us to to balance the, the live and interactive experience and, and content and Q&A and knowledge sharing people can have. And this time is something we learned from On Helix was the fact that actually coffee breaks are still important even in virtual conferences. I think we'd sort of gone down a mindset thinking, well, people haven't got to go and get coffee or lunch or network with each other, so we may as well just carry on with the content. But actually you need to create opportunities for them to go and network virtually or to go and make themselves a cup of coffee at the end of the day because they need to be given time to be away from the screen and away from concentrating. So those things come in into play as well as part of that interaction. And the on-demand, you can supplement then what's going on with those live and interactive sessions. So the live streaming, but we'll also release some pre-recorded, effectively parallel streams you could, could go and look at because they'll launch according to an agenda. So if there's something that's in the live stream and you're not quite sure that's a topic you wanted to listen to, but oh, I really did want to listen to what's happening in digital health and how we're improving technology to patient connections, then I can go and watch that and come back for the subsequent panel. But again, I touched upon the archive of information we have. A lot of this information can almost serve as background reading or, or homework 
But actually, if I go back and listen to what's going on in technology transfer, and then I'll have a better context to understand some of that panel discussion and even ask better questions, potentially. So I think it's about encouraging our attendees to make the best use they can of the on-demand content so that they get the best return on their investment of time of engaging in that discussion and not be too passive. I think often you can be passive because you kind of feel you're not quite enough of an expert in the topic to really ask the question. You, you're you burning your head, even though probably half of the audience has also got the same question, not asking it. I think it really gives a great opportunity to have a much more informed discussion. Yeah. I think um, encouraging people to get out of their comfort zone is a huge part of it. If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. But now we're in a new, you know, the rules have been changed. So get out there, see what works for you. There's been a learning curve, I guess, over the, the last few months. And we see it, we see the differences between some of the on Helix interactive sessions and, and the Genesis ones. Because for a long time, there was this kind of, no one knows what the right etiquette is when you're on a, a Zoom call or listening to a presentation or panel discussion. It was almost... Well, if I type something in the in the, the chat box now because I've got a comment or a question, will that appear rude because I'm not listening to the presenter? And and there was this sort of reluctance and lack of confidence, whereas now people have sort of accepted, you know, even by my multitasking standards, which doesn't set the bar high, I can type a question or comment as well as listen to what they're talking about on the screen. And it's And I think it's getting people confident enough that they're not going to offend anyone. You know, everybody moderating sessions has learned moderating a session online is very different to moderating that discussion in a physical venue. Uh, yeah, I feel that in the online world today, because it's, it's not like you're sat around a table at the boardroom, you, you've got to be a lot more succinct with your responses and your points. Say it in as few words as possible. It's the same in any sort of like internal, external call, or yeah. even running a podcast, making sure that I ask succinct questions. Um, but interestingly, you, so you mentioned on-demand content. By the time this goes out, I think you'll still be able to sign up to to Genesis, which available on uh, on the One Nucleus website. But after the fact, what's uh, w- will the on-demand content still be available? How how can people access that? Yeah, sure. So for four weeks post event, it remains available via the conference app that they will have used to access the sessions and the, the networking and partnering and, and details. And beyond that, we, we upload it onto the, the One Nucleus site. People can come to the One Nucleus site. There's a, a sector data section that will take them the opportunity to go to the on-demand listing of what's available. And if they're a member, they can access it for free. It's like all content. It will date after a while. You know, I'm sure if I look back at the, the keynote session we did about the response to COVID-19 when we were back in July, I'm sure the same people would say different things if we interviewed them again for that question. So I I appreciate that uh, we're still a couple of weeks out, but how many delegates and exhibitors are we expecting for the event on Thursday the 10th? So we're expecting around about the 400, 450 delegates for Genesis. The numbers I'm hearing across the board for conferences are slightly lower for the in-person conference. So we're expecting about 450, and then there will be in terms of the innovation workshops that sort of replace the exhibitors, there's around 20 of those going on across the week for people to engage in. And we've deliberately scheduled them so that none of them clash. There are times when you don't want to spend four days in front of a, a screen watching workshops, but actually you can tailor make your own agenda to the ones you're particularly interested in. And again, we'll be recording them all so they become available online. And I think beyond that, it's going to be interesting to see how active people remain following up with contacts that having seen the on-demand content and that person being on the system to then message, connect with Meet 
by when you go to a physical event, if it's not done on the day, essentially you've missed the opportunity to connect without it being a lot harder work. Yeah, you've got the ability to go back and and really leverage that connectivity. So, uh, how how have companies adapted their communications and their digital marketing strategies? Have you seen that's changed over the course of this year? We've clearly seen a a huge increase in the volume of digital marketing activity. I guess if you use a broad definition of of what's digital marketing, but you know we've got companies now, particularly contract research organisations and technical service providers and and professional services creating a lot more content to put online, whether they are webinars they've created or whether they're recorded sessions that are educational. So I think they've really embraced the technology to say, well, you know what, we're here, we can make this available. I'm not going to get the chance to explain this to somebody over a a cup of coffee or a beer at an event. So I'm going to make it available on, on the web for them to do this. But I think what's also been interesting is that it's been the speed with which a number of I've seen our member companies in the sector learn how to do digital marketing. But actually, they really managed to narrow down on what are the key things that they want people to take away from that, watching that recording or joining that event. So you have to try and get inside that mindset of what's going to be interesting enough to stay tuned and listen and, and even dial into in the first place. So I think what I've seen is actually, a yes, a shift to them being online because that's kind of what they've had to do. But it's not just been moving what they would have done at a conference and putting it online. They've actually really gone back and thought about what's that key message. And I think that's the same for whether you're wanting to create a pitch that goes to investors. All of a sudden now you haven't got the two or three minutes even at the start of the meeting that's the small talk and niceties. They're going to go straight into the recording. So what's going to grab their attention quick enough? So I guess the biggest shift has been the the fast forwarding, I guess, to the future, because for a long time we've talked about what the future of communication looks like and how it's going to become more of a conversation and less of just information push. And I think it's just fast forwarded that. I guess where we're still all learning is how to deal with the other side of the conversation when it comes back if it doesn't agree with you. I think in one respect, you can, especially if you're putting on large scale virtual life science events, uh, I think businesses have to almost have a bit of the publisher about them. They have to publish educational, effective application-based content. It's a great part of a book uh, called They Ask You Answer, and it's about servicing your customer with every possible question that your customer or potential prospect or customer might have. And I think that's it. We've had companies that have never really had to focus on that in a a digital sense. You know, it's been very much the face-to-face physical communication, or indeed written journals, if it's it's the science side of it. Yeah. Doing that online is a different skill set that they're having to learn. Back to the physical and the virtual side of things. Next year, say 2021, we, we have a vaccine. We're able to protect the most vulnerable people in society. How do you see, where would you see on Helix or Genesis in 2021? Could you see a hybrid event format working? I think we'll certainly see more technology. If we, if we assume we're able to go back to face-to-face or have the choice of virtual or hybrid, then I think we'll certainly see more technology used in the event. So I think whether we still create that backdrop of on-demand content that leads people into a face-to-face conference, whether we do live streaming or and recording, I think we'll certainly see more technology being used. And I think we can retain that ability to bring in international perspectives to our events. And I think there is this genuine appetite for people. They want to go back and be sociable animals and, and talk to each other. But I think as well, people will have realized what's worked well and not so well through this period. So are they are they going to choose different conferences to go to or, or particular formats? And when it comes then to, you know, the, 
the hybrid events. I guess the concern I have around fully hybrid events where you've got kind of half your audience in the room and half remote is whether there's a danger of, of splitting the audience where you end up with an audience in two places, both wishing they were in the other one. So if you're someone who wants to provide a service or wants to engage with folk face-to-face as a part of your business development and, and selling approach, if you like, if there's none of the buy side in the room because they're thinking, oh, what, I can do this remotely if I'm a big pharma company or investor. Do I need to be at the meeting for that? You could end up with all sell side in one place and all buy side in the other. And that may be different for other events, even within our own sector. If it's about medical technology and more trade floor based, maybe that drives it more to to being amenable to demonstrations in a hybrid event, but, but also having the physical presence of the trade stand. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure in my own mind that Genesis and Onhelix will come back in a physical form of some kind. But whether it's fully physical or whether it's a hybrid event, or whether it indeed will be a virtual event, but we will do some physical elements around it. So I can easily see why a, a virtual event like Genesis this year would still work well. They will be forms of hybrid. I'm just not sure what that shape looks like. I think you almost have to incentivize, yeah, incentivize people to want to sh- show up to the full networking event. I think that's ultimately where you get the most value. But at the same time, I've been to there's a, an inbound marketing conference in Boston from HubSpot. So that obviously digital marketing leading the way. I've been to two out of the last four or five years, and that's in Boston. So that, that's you know, traveling over the, the Atlantic to get there. But it is you, you learn and you take away so much from it. Equally, they do live stream all their content and they put it on demand. So you can go, go back on YouTube and find particular sessions that you want to watch. But there's nothing quite like being there. Yeah, yeah there are some elements you just can't replace online easily and you have to accommodate that because it's part of the the armory of how we progress ultimately we've mentioned um life science financing and and investment communities um how has the financing side of life science has been affected over the course of 2020 i think what has been really interesting over this period is the fact that 2020 looks like it's going to be a record year of amount of finance raised by the life sciences sector in the uk and obviously some of that money has come in into companies who are active in the COVID-19 response and research and and products and being driven by a need for everybody to do things as quickly as they can and and therefore need resources to do that. But there are many companies who've raised money well outside of the COVID space. They're they're active in immunotherapies for cancer. They're active in dementia research. So I think what the financing has flowed and, and we've seen deals happen and large sums of money raised. And I think that probably is a combination of great science going on and there's great things to invest in Um, and the the venture funds need to place their money so they can't stop doing deals uh, whilst the pandemic is on. So I think financing has worked at a very, very healthy level and I think you may well see that people who hadn't been investing in life sciences have started to appreciate not just the, the monetary value of investing but also they want to be responsible citizens, they want to be part of doing and making a difference and impact investing. And I think it'll play to that agenda as well, because there's been a very clear demonstration of the benefits of, of first-class biomedical research and, and product development. So I'm, I'm, like I said, you know, I'm an optimist by nature, and I think we've seen the life science sector justifiably raise uh, significant money because it has demonstrated it adds an awful lot of value to our society and, and our populations. How will the, the, the major trends within biotech, healthcare, life sciences, what will that look over the next five years? What do you see? I think what 
what I see when I'm looking out is many of the trends that were already happening, the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning and data science to inform research and development in the biomedical field, that convergence of technology and, and biology. So I think what this pandemic has done has accelerated those trends. So I think we're going to see much more interdisciplinary teams progressing within the life science space. And that in itself, referring to the last point, may well bring in investors that to date hadn't looked into healthcare as one of their sectors because they were in the tech space. I think we've gone full circle there. First question about collaboration and we finish on collaboration. I think so. So Tony, thank you very much for your time today. That was fantastic. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. A big thank you to Tony there. Don't forget to subscribe or visit azonetwork.com slash podcasts to find out more information. Next week, I'll be joined by Daniel Brazier, who is a technical solutions architect at WP Engine. We'll be talking about how cybersecurity is becoming increasingly important in a work from home world. We'll see you there.